0: This podcast has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients, and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. Please read other important information, which can be found on the link at the end of the podcast episode.
1: Good morning and welcome to the Eye on the Market for late September, uh, in our September 8th piece. We reviewed many of the market and economic issues at stake in the election. So with one month to go, I just wanted to to briefly mention two last topics. Uh, The first is the election as a referendum on the U.S., and the second is how should we think about the rising possibility of a very, very contested election process. So on the first point, Uh, I was reading some J.P. Morgan investment bank research at the end of August, and they had a piece where they recommended that investors position for rising odds that Trump gets reelected. And the primary point of their argument was the protests that are going on, and that if those protests are seen as violent, that could materially affect voting patterns. Uh, They cited some other research they had read showing that um, demonstrations at a county level In 1960 through 1972, in the United States, a boosted Republican vote outcomes by about 2 to 8 percent. And, you know, I know it sounds very mathematical, but, you know, this is not 1960 and 1972 when most Americans still trusted the federal government as an antidote, uh, as a prevention from chaos, and when violent crime rates were were quickly rising. Uh, And in a poll this month, Around 60% of respondents said they thought the administration's response to the protests were harmful compared to only 30% that thought they were helpful. And um, my, I guess my response to the uh, investment banking piece is that while some voters may see the administration as a guardians against lawlessness, uh, there may be just as many, if not more, voters who see the current administration as purveyors of it. In any case, I think rather than focusing on the protests in isolation – uh, this this election may be a referendum on how well the overall system works in America and, and for whom. And uh, I took the World Bank high-income universe and I broke it down into a lot of different categories using a lot of different sources to see how does the U.S. stack up against the rest of the world, because I think that may also be influencing how people vote this year. So. Unsurprisingly, and there's a chart in here that shows you all these rankings, the U.S. ranks at the very top for equity investors and for entrepreneurs. We have lower regulatory burdens, lower tax burdens. Uh, It's much easier uh, as a manager of a company to hire and fire people, easier to do business. And the legal system is oriented to resolve commercial disputes quickly and fairly. All of those things contribute to top top decile profits, growth, and equity returns. Uh, Now let's look at for workers. How does the system work for workers? The U.S. ranks above average on median income, uh, whether adjusted for purchasing power or not, uh, on housing costs. And and the OECD has a measure measure of a better life uh, that looks at jobs, housing, work-life balance, environment, and personal safety. And uh, the U.S. ranks still above average on on those kinds of things. Uh, But that's where The rankings uh, start to slip after that. Um, There are cracks in the U.S. judicial and legal system. The U.S. now ranks median or below on judicial independence and corruption. Um, uh, The U.S. US ranks below median on homelessness, basic educational – uh, on math, science, and reading, uh, healthcare, care, uh, including COVID mortality. The US, the U.S. ranks very poorly on income distribution, generational mobility, and poverty, and ranks at the very bottom on, seminal, on civil and criminal justice and discrimination. So some of these problems have existed for decades, of course, but I think this year uh, voters are going to be more inclined than ever to judge an incumbent president on whether his administration made some of these problems better on the margin or made them worse. So you can take a look at the uh, at the chart that shows these different rankings, because I have a feeling that this broader context and referendum uh, is going to be um, more impactful on the overall voting patterns than the protests in isolation. So what kind of election results are we going to get and when? Everybody's aware right now that there's going to be a surge in mail-in voting this year. Um, could be 40%, 50% in some states. Uh, nobody really knows and given the relentless uh, criticism of the mail-in voting process by both Trump and his attorney general, um, I had included on Labor Day a, uh, um, an election primer on, on how the election works. And what we said at the time is still true, which is on, on January 6th, Congress will almost certainly do one of three things. Either announce a president based on the Electoral College results, or announce a contingent election that's held by the House to choose a new president if the Electoral College fails to produce a candidate that gets a majority of accepted votes, or if the contingent election fails to produce a winning candidate uh, designate the Speaker of the House as a temporary acting president until sufficient rounds of voting in the contingent election in the House determine a winner. And I think I may have made it sound simpler than it is because the primer that we had didn't cover all of the steps that are fraught with potential for legal uncertainty, Uh, uh, judicial interpretation, gamesmanship, and this kind of stuff. And, you know, and with the president of the United States being cited as having declined to commit to a peaceful transfer of power, uh, you know, we we want to take another look at this. So what we did in this week's uh, piece is to look at at some of the uncertainties that we didn't discuss in our Labor Day piece. Um, I'm just going to tick through them really quickly here, and you can look at this um, for more detail. But Six weeks from November 3rd to December 14th when the electoral college meets sounds like a long time but may not be. And one of the primary reasons is in states that have requested or automatic recounts, uh, those absentee ballots may end up having to be counted twice. Um, there are other, uh, there have been Supreme Court decisions that require states to extend voting deadlines from having your mail-in ballot received on election day and now that they're requiring it to be postmarked on election day so um and, and there are going to be countless opportunities for election lawyers to file court challenges and alleging violations and all this kinds of stuff and the other all of which could result in more than one set of electoral results being submitted from a state in the prior primer i mentioned that in most states it's the secretary of state in each state that oversees and certifies the election results and that's true but in other states the governor and the state legislature as well may have equal standing, and they may just decide to submit a separate slate of electors, electoral results to the Congress, uh, to the Electoral College, um, and then the Congress would have to sort out which electoral state to, to, uh, to approve. Um, the other thing that's important to point out is if some electoral votes are not reported by December 14th, or they get rejected by Congress for procedural reasons, there's a chance that Congress would select the president based on less than 270 electoral votes. In other words, if, if 20 electoral votes uh, from the state of Pennsylvania just were not submitted in time or were thrown out, uh, Congress could select the president based on whether or not someone received a majority of the uh, electoral votes that were submitted. So instead of needing 270, you would need 270 um, you know, minus 10, which would be half of the 20 plus 1. So um, there are circumstances under which um, election lawyers would have an incentive to tie up states in the courts for as long as they possibly could, hoping that their results would get thrown out of both the numerator and the denominator of electoral college. And and that opens up a whole string of unknowns, which is, what if a state doesn't complete its vote count until after the 14th? uh, will Congress accept the results? It, it could be unconstitutional against federal law to count electoral votes submitted after the 14th because that would mean that the process is not uniform across all states, which is one of the requirements. What if a state submits results by the 14th but have only counted 97% of the ballots and, and know that there's a small number of absentee ballots that remain uncounted? Uh, that may also be unconstitutional. And then there's also issues about faithless electors. What would Congress do if the Electoral College were really close in early December, but on the 14th, a few electors decide to throw the election to another candidate or to abstain from voting to force a uh, contingent election? So um, there's a lot of scenarios that we walk through in here. um, And of course, there's always the nightmare scenario that you almost had in 1876 of dueling inaugurations where each party declares a different winner. Uh, like most Americans, I think I'm praying for time so that this process can be carried out fairly and accurately and that we have a winner that's clear well before the Electoral College meets in December. Uh, but again, um, given the the rising uh, and relentless criticism of the Valen voting process by the president and some members of his cabinet, um, we thought it was important to update everybody on, on what we know and we don't know about the process itself. So Uh, more to come, hopefully shortly after Election Day. Thank you.
0: Michael Semblis, Eye on the Market, offers a unique perspective on the economy, current events, markets, and investment portfolios, and is a production of J.P. Morgan Asset and Wealth Management. Michael Semblis is the Chairman of Market and Investment Strategy for J.P. Morgan Asset Management and is one of our most renowned and provocative speakers. For more information, please subscribe to the Eye on the Market by contacting your J.P. Morgan representative. If you'd like to hear more, please explore episodes on iTunes or on our website. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is a communication on behalf of J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated. Views may not be suitable for all investors and are not intended as personal investment advice or as solicitation or recommendation. Outlooks and past performance are never guarantees of future results. This is not investment research. Please read other important information, which can be found at www.jpmorgan.com forward slash disclaimer dash EOTM.